Well, hey, good morning again. It is a great day and a great time to celebrate the, uh, the work that God is doing in the life of our church and, uh, and a great day uh, for you to consider making the same decision that Carly has made by trusting Christ as your Savior and following him in obedience. And, uh, and so I'm excited that you're here with us today to celebrate these things. We'll be taking communion um, after the sermon today. And uh, we're going to be in Philippians 2. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, and if you don't have one, we put black hardback Bibles around under the chairs around you for you to, uh, to, uh, to grab and to look and see what God's Word has to say. Uh, we'll be in Philippians 2 this morning. It's really a, uh, a, a very um, interesting time to be in Philippians 2 together, uh, considering this is the Christmas season or the beginning of the Christmas season. Uh, the Christmas season for Americans is un- undoubtedly uh, the, the trendy time of year to be selfless. And, uh, and, I, and I don't mean that with disdain, but it's just interesting to me that this is the time of the year that it becomes so popular and trendy to think of others. When the gospel itself um, calls us to die to self and that true joy is found in living for others, it should be the season of our entire year to live for others, yet it's this time of year specifically, um, we become more aware of the needs of others, uh, we become more aware of those families who do not have, uh, we become more aware of those who are living on the streets, those who are living in poverty, which is a fantastic mindset to have, uh, but what we're going to see this morning, that this is actually the mindset of the Christ follower year-round, to be engulfed with the needs of others, to be thinking about and aware of the needs of others. And so Philippians 2 is going to walk us through this journey Uh, This morning, we're going to start in verse 1. If you've got your Bible, let's turn there and let's hear the words of God through the Apostle Paul. So, he begins, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So what he's saying here is basically, if anybody in the room is a Christian... I want to say some things to you. So these are things that we should know in our lives if we are in Christ. Uh, We should be encouraged. We should be living in the comfort of his love. We should be participating with his spirit. And we should have an affection and even a sympathy for others. And he goes on then in verse 2 to say, well, if that's true, if you've experienced these things, verse 2, then complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now there's an interesting phrase that Paul makes here, a statement he makes when he says, complete my joy, or if you're in another translation, make my joy complete. Now we know that the Apostle Paul is writing from prison. We've already addressed that in this series. And we know that part of what he's praying for and looking forward to is to be released, either by life, to be released from prison, or by death. We know he's longing for that release. It's something he's looking forward to. However, we saw last week that his joy isn't contingent on not being in prison, that he had joy in prison. He called the other believers to rejoice with him, which he will do again today. So we know that what, what's incomplete about his joy is not the fact that he's in prison. So it it begs the question, why is Paul's joy incomplete? What is it about Paul that, that, that would cause his joy from his perspective to be incomplete? He knows Christ. He's been radically saved and forgiven of, of this incredible rap sheet against the church. And, and so much good God has done in his life that he has so much to rejoice about. Yet, he writes, 
My joy is incomplete, and I'm counting on you to complete it. Well, he goes on to say this, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So he begins to let us in on what it is that he's calling for, that his joy may be complete. And so what he's going to describe in the next few verses is really under the umbrella of being of the same mind. So something about his joy being complete has to do with us being on the same page, of the same mindset. So look at what he says here next. He says, being of the same mind, he explains that. First of all, it means having the same love. Two Sundays ago, we looked at this together, what it means we've both accessed the same love, we both draw from the same well of God's grace and love and mercy, then we then share that with and on and to one another that I would love you the way Christ loves me and you would love me the way Christ loves you and we would love each other the way Christ loves us that the world would look inside the church and see something different. We'd see the love of Christ being passed around to and fro among the believers, that we would share in that same love. So to be of the same mind means we have the same love, we share in that same love, He goes on to say this, not only that, being in full accord and of one mind. It's it's really a a great word, full accord. Uh, It it means to to stand together united, to be one, to be united as one. And so there's there's a couple of other English words that help me visualize what um, what I believe Paul's getting at here. The first one is using the word chord as in music. So if you know anything about music, you know how a chord works. We just heard some chords Uh, And so oftentimes, if you're not a musician, you don't really notice the significance of a chord until a note is out of place, and then you realize somebody played the wrong note. The only reason we know that and have our bearings for that audibly is because chords framework the music we're hearing. And so when a note is played that doesn't fit into the chord, we hear it and we go, that's not right. So that's true of us in Christ, that we would live in such a way to be in harmony with one another, to fit together in our lives, even though we're different. Even though we're significantly different, we would come together in harmony to the point that when somebody gets out of harmony, it's obvious. But this would be what identifies us in Christ that would be of the same chord. I also think of what um, the wise man Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 4, talking about relationships, that a chord of three strands is not easily broken, a different kind of chord, that our relationships so be so tightly knit Together, We understand that one strand may be fragile, but when three come together and are woven together, undeniably the three are all stronger. So this idea of being of the full accord is our unity in Christ would be that strong, that frustrations with one another, disappointments with one another, annoyances with one another, disagreements with one another wouldn't be able to break us apart. There may be tension at times in our relationships, but being in Christ means, being in the same mind means that we stand in one Accord in a strongly bound unity with one another and of one mind. He goes on to describe what we're going to see as true humility in this way do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Ooh, what's the number one problem with that? From day one in our fallen state, we are hardwired to live with selfish ambition. The smallest among us is hardwired to live herself, right, moms? Even the beautiful, little, innocent, precious baby knows how to live for self. We don't fault them for that. They're hungry. They have no way to tell you that they're hungry, but they'll let you know when they're hungry, when they're cold, when they're wet, when they feel like they need something. And so we're hardwired in our fallen state to live for self, to live for number one. Yet in Christ, we're being called to live for others, 
So Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, Paul is saying is, make my joy complete by living this way. When, when news hits my ears that you are living this way, then my joy will be complete. One of my observations, this is not um, for everybody in the church, but it's an observation of modern-day Christianity, is this, that um, there's this idea, there's this narcissism about our relationship with God that somehow it only has to do with me and him. As long as he and I are good, the rest of the world can just take a hike. And so therefore, there's no need for me together with the church unless I find one I like. There's no need for me together with the church unless people are nice to me. Right? I don't need anything. There's nothing about my relationship with God that is missing or incomplete. And what Paul's saying is that's wrong. That separated from the body, separation among believers leaves you with an incomplete joy. Is there still joy to be had? Absolutely. There's a joy to be had in knowing Christ and knowing your sins are forgiven and you've been made righteous and your relationship with God is intact and, and your identity is secured. And However, Paul isn't saying I don't have joy. He's just saying here's what will make my joy complete. When you live in this type of unity and harmony and selflessness with one another. Counting others more significant than yourself. There's something about what Paul is calling us to that is significantly different from the way we naturally do relationships. Naturally. Okay? Um, we are naturally uh, inclined to walk in disposable relationships. We learn about this early on, even in probably elementary school, especially in junior high, just how disposable relationships are, right? And so we, we utilize a relationship, we engage in a relationship, we invest in a relationship as long as there's something to be offered back. But the moment something else presents itself as better, we quickly discard what we consider to be less valuable to go after something that we consider to be more valuable, and we discard people I'm not just talking about dating, but obviously in dating, but even in general friendships. As I look back over my history of people I called my best friend and how those seasons changed and, and was so quickly to latch on to one particular person as a best friend, and then the next year, just because they weren't in my class again, I no longer called them my best friend. And, and then we get into adulthood, and we just carry on this same principle oftentimes. I'm willing to be your friend. I'm not talking about Facebook friends. Um, so funny how that phrase is, I think we're friends. You know what we mean by that is I think we're Facebook friends, whatever that means. But even in adult friendships, right, we're willing to give, we're willing to be a part of as long as what's being reciprocated is pleasant. It's meeting my expectations. And then this obviously transcends into the way we do marriage. That's why our divorce rate is so high. Um, the, the, all the reasons that you don't like that person today, that you want to divorce that person for, they were there back when you made those vows. What's, what's changed? You no, no longer see the value in that person is worth dealing with all the issues, and so now we what? We so quickly dispose of it. Now, that's not true of all divorce, but by and large, I think it's true in our culture how quickly we dispose of people. And so something about what Paul is calling us to cuts against the grain of how we naturally do relationships. This isn't a barter system. This isn't, I'll bring something to the table if you will. This isn't, I'll be nice to you if you'll be nice to me. I'll serve you as long as you serve 
me. Paul is calling us in Christ to what? Drop your self-interest and serve and live for others. Now, not only does that cut against the grain of how we do relationships, it cuts against the human nature altogether. We are self-autonomous by nature, living for self, promoting self, living in this, this idea of it's my world and everybody else just lives in it. I was uh, having lunch with a, uh, with a non-believer this week, and uh, even a non-believer picked that out as we were talking about culture and he said this, some, you know, maybe out on a limb, but one of my observations about the world is we're very me-centric. Man, you're closer to the gospel than you know. You're absolutely right. Hardwired to live for self. And so not only is Paul calling us to this way of living, he's saying that complete joy is found in living this way. If we continue on, let's talk for just a minute about what it means to live and be a part of the community of Christ, even specifically what that means here at Solid Rock. I know some of you are, are new here, so let me just let you in on, on uh, some of the things that drive us as a church. But I would say this, but even before we get to how we do it here at, church, at Solid Rock, is this. Um, in order to be involved in community, the community of Christ, there needs to be a willingness to place yourself in environments where you are challenged to love beyond what comes natural. And so if we just do relationships inside the church the same way we do them outside the church, inside and outside, what happens is the birds of a feather flock together. We're looking for a life group of people like me. I'm looking for a class, a Bible study class I can go to with people like me who think like me. That's more comfortable. I'm looking for an event, men's ministry or women's ministry that looks the way I think it should look. I'm looking for a church that does church the way I think it should look. And what Paul's calling us to doesn't work that way. There must be a willingness to place ourselves in environments that challenge us to love people that we don't naturally want to love. So the excuses of, I'm too busy, I'm too tired, I'm not interested, I don't think I'll get anything out of that, those, those, those excuses fall flat on the ground in what Paul is calling us to. Those aren't our motives for getting together. Well, if it's interesting, I'll come. As long as I'm not too busy, I'll be involved with the community of Christ. Right? As long as it fits my agenda, what Paul is saying is that we've been so radically changed in Christ, this should become our agenda. Like, I should be looking for more opportunities to spend time with the important relationships in my life, beginning first with my own family, which is where a lot of us need to start. But secondly, that I would engage in the community of Christ, even beyond what's fun or comfortable Interesting or engaging, but I would come because you're here. Now think about that, just with Sunday mornings. So part of the reason why you're here is hopefully to hear a word from the Lord that he would speak to you, and your vertical relationship with God would be challenged and enriched and grown. But there's a second reason why we gather. Why? Because you're here. My responsibility to be here with you is partly to God, and it's also to you, together with you in Christ to worship. Now, at Solid Rock, one of the primary ways we facilitate community and even discipleship is within our life groups, and you hear us talk about that often. And here's the thing. Um, we wouldn't put out in front of you that life groups, life groups is the best way to do church. It just happens to be the way we do it here. If we were a Sunday school-driven church, you know what? With equal emphasis, we would be calling you into Sunday school programs. Why? Because that's where you're going to find community. 
And so at Solid Rock, the primary way we do that is, is life groups. Um, I've had people ask me, you know, why do, you, why do we do life groups at Solid Rock instead of like a Sunday school program or, or other? I've got a, a couple of answers I would share. Um, here, here's just some things that, that come to mind. Um, one, when we look at the Acts 2 model, um, we see that the believers were in homes together, um, sharing. They were committed to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayers. They were growing together in the community within the context of a home. Does that mean you can't do it in a classroom? Not at all. But what was it about that that made sense? It was efficient. And that's one of the reasons why we do that. It's not that Sunday school is not a big deal. It's just that when, when, when God's people give, we're on a mission together, we have to think about that. And so it's efficient. It's cost-effective to do life groups. But you know what? There's another reason that we do life groups in the context of homes primarily. And, and here it is, um, because it's more messy. It's true, right? It's a whole lot easier for you and I to show up on Sunday morning to a classroom that's been cleaned. Somebody else cleaned it for us. We come in, and for a good 45 minutes to an hour, we can pretend like life is fine, everything is fine, and we're just here to study the Bible, and we can walk away. But you can't do that in a life group setting. It's messy. Not just physically, but relationally, it's messy. It's truly messy to live life with one another. But we believe this is solid rock. Real life involves walking through real messes. And if we never get to the messes, you and I really aren't sharing life together. What do we mean by messes? Disagreements, frustrations, struggles, um, those, those phone calls at 1 a.m., I think I'm going to leave him, you better talk me out of this, those lunch meetings where you think you're just showing up to casually catch up on things and somebody drops a big bomb on you, I've been thinking about ending my life or leaving her or I'm not really sure where I stand with Christ, I mean, those are messy hard conversations. And so another reason why we do life groups here is to facilitate this community that we're called to and to walk through messes together. Not necessarily with people who, who we're interested in being with or who live like us. Oftentimes, there's a lot of differences. It was funny. I was at a, um, a life group Christmas party last night. Uh, multiple life groups came together. It was a beautiful time of community and celebration and fun. And one of my observations was the span of, of age differences in that room. Um, that's the community of Christ. And those who are there are kind of grinning because you were there. I mean, you've got uh, on one end of the spectrum, folks who are retired, who have grandkids in this room, spending time in community with people who aren't even married in their 20s and right, just having a great time. And, and what, what bound us together? What was it that drew us into community? It was Christ. Just, just an example of what the community is supposed to look like. If you're taking notes, here's what we've learned so far, I believe, from the word, is that complete joy requires living in self-sacrificial relationships within the community of Christ. Okay? So if you're not connected to the community of Christ, you can't even begin to obey what God just said. That makes it quite difficult, right? So you could be a self-sacrificial person, right, trying to live out the love that God has poured out on you and in you, in the world around you, but that's not what he's saying here. He's calling us to self-sacrificial living within the community of Christ. And that's important. Complete joy requires living in self-sacrificial relationships with the community of Christ. Let's pick it up in verse 5. What Paul is going to do now is he is going to turn us to begin thinking about the example of Christ, how he set that example for us. Verse 5, have this mind 
among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, talking about him, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. But instead, here's what Christ did, verse 7. He emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, the same confession that Carly Henderson made today, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, it's interesting as Paul calls us to this living for others, this complete joy that's found in living for others, he turns us quickly back to the example of Christ, that Christ, being God himself, he emptied himself and he humbled himself to walk among us, even to the cross. Now, we think about what that means. I have to go back to the very first thing we read in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. In Christ Jesus. See, here's what Paul is telling us very clearly. If you're in Christ, the excuses are off the table. You and I have access to this mindset. Every room we walk into, every environment we step into, every context that we move into, whether it is this setting here or your office at work or your living room at home, you have the option to choose this mindset and live for others. Now, there is still competing inside of us, live for self, live for self. And so every context I step into, my own living room, I make a choice here. I have access to this mindset, to live as Christ and to live for others, or to come in and make my demands, to live for myself. It's true of my home environment, it's true of my church environment, it's true of my friendships, so that every relationship, every environment you walk into, you have this opportunity to choose this mindset. I'm going to walk into this mindset and live for others. Now, he turns to the example of Christ and he tells us that Christ emptied himself. Let's think about what it means to empty yourself or pour yourself out, is the way Paul's going to say it at, at the end of this of chapter, verse 18. Pour yourself out. Christ emptied himself. Christ emptied himself, which means he poured out his glory to take on the form of a servant. In any, uh, anytime you pass by a nativity scene this year, I want you to think about something. Every nativity scene, as long as it's somewhat biblical, is actually telling two stories. And, and they're, they're closely related, but two stories. The first story is this, of a virgin, a young teenage virgin, who's engaged to be married to Joseph, who is, um, who is, who's having a child, right? And rather than being celebrated and acknowledged by friends and family, it's proclaimed by angels and celebrated by strangers. That's what you see in the nativity scene, right? That's the narrative unfolding. This baby has been born to Mary and Joseph. And uh, as she looks around, uh, she doesn't see mom and, and aunts and, and, and people around her that she knows. She's, I mean, think about that, ladies. How comforting would that be? Right there in your hospital room. Some shepherds and maybe some wise men, a few stable animals. That's the narrative that's, that we're seeing, right, in the nativity. However, there is a, there's a backdrop, and I would say a primary narrative that's happening in this, that God himself is emptying himself. He's pouring out his glory. He's becoming a servant to live among us in the most fragile, 
vulnerable state of humanity. He's being born as a baby. This is what Paul is getting at here when he says that he poured himself, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's the real story of the nativity. Not only did he pour himself out, he also humbled himself in obedience to the Father. And so something about our joy being complete has to do with obedience. This is different from how we naturally think of obedience, isn't it? Obedience doesn't bring joy. Obedience makes me mad. Obedience causes me to push back. Obedience causes me to tell you to get out of my face. And and here Paul is saying that obedience to Christ should bring about a fullness of joy. There should be a joy in knowing Christ asks you to do something, commands you to do something, and then you do it. There should be a joy in walking in that obedience. It's not arbitrary obedience. The commands of Christ to us are always for our good and his glory. And so even when we don't understand it, even when you don't understand it, what was an example, um, from time to time somebody will come to me and say, I really feel like God's called me to do this, whether it's to go on a mission trip, maybe to the Philippines, like, whoa, I've never been on a plane. I feel like God's, I don't understand that. However, there's a joy to be had in saying yes to Christ and walking in obedience. Baptism is, is a big challenge for some folks who don't like being in front of people Yet there's a joy to be had in walking in that obedience. So Paul is setting Jesus out as the example of what it looks like to pour yourself out or empty yourself and humble yourself in obedience that you might have complete joy. C.S. Lewis says this in The Problem of Pain. He says, when God becomes a man and lives as a creature among his own creatures in Palestine, then indeed his life is one of supreme self-sacrifice and leads to Calvary. So C.S. Lewis is saying the same thing in a different way, that in Christ on the cross what we're seeing is the ultimate expression of self-sacrifice when God emptied himself and became like the creatures he created. Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was not Uh, necessarily a Christian, says this about self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice is the real miracle out of which all the reported miracles grow. And in Christ, we would say, yeah. And we probably believe that for maybe different reasons, but yeah, that's right. Out of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, that's where all real miracles grow out of. The reason why you and I would ever want to do anything for one another is because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and that sacrifice of Christ has been to our good and so now we want to live for others the same way Christ lived and died and rose again for us. You hear me say this often. We want to bend out horizontally what has been extended to us vertically from God and bend that out towards one another. We'll continue on in Philippians. In verse 12, we get a big word. It's a therefore So what's going to happen is Paul's going to shift now to some application. So he warmed us up, calling us to let go of selfish ambition, to live for others. Then he put Jesus out as an example. And now he's going to say, therefore, wrapping it all up here for us. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always, what? Obeyed. So he put Christ out there as this example of obedience. So he's talking about, listen, this obedience isn't a new thing to you. I've witnessed this in you. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my present, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Obedience with grumbling is not true obedience to Christ. Only obedience tempered with joy is true obedience to Christ. Do everything without grumbling or disputing, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So if you're taking notes, let's make this statement. Complete joy is founding in emptying yourself to serve others. Complete joy is found in emptying yourself to serve others. The same way Christ emptied himself, poured himself out, we too are called to do the same thing, to empty ourselves, to pour ourselves out for the sake of others. But not only do we find complete joy in serving others, we can also make this statement, complete joy is found in humbling yourself to walk in obedience to Christ. Complete joy is found in humbling yourself to walk in obedience to Christ. Now, there's an illustration that I heard many years ago that I continue to use when it comes to our relationship with God and walking in obedience. And some of you dads can maybe relate to this if you've ever played ball with one of your kiddos out in the yard and got too close to the street. This idea that I'm out here in relationship and we're playing ball with one another, I'm throwing it to you, you're throwing it back to me, I'm coaching you a little, but mainly I'm just enjoying this relationship we have, we're spending time together, and then your kiddo gets too close to the street or moves out into the street. At that point, you're no longer playing ball. You now have to become dad and give a command to get out of the street. And, and, and you don't throw the ball back until what? Until your child is out of the street. Even if your child says, dad, throw me the ball. What are you going to say? Get out of the street. But dad, throw it to me, I can catch it. I will throw it to you, but I need you to get out of the street. It's for your good, right, that I'm doing this. Dad, throw me the ball. Get out of the street. The commands of God are such to us. They call us out of the street, out of harm's way, out of danger, out of what is not joyful into what is. And so obedience to Christ is not arbitrary, meaningless, mindless. It's truly walking towards what is good. What is right? What leads to real joy? So our complete joy is found in emptying ourselves. Complete joy is found in humbling ourselves in obedience. I want to make this comment about um, walking uh, in in emptiness for others. Um, we, We don't have to make this rocket science. One of the most powerful questions you can ask another human being to empty yourself and live for others is this simple question. What can I do to help you? That can be in the midst of obvious need, or it could be random at any point in time. God puts someone in your heart, you give them a phone call, you shoot them an email, just thinking about you today. Is there anything I can do to help out? Or maybe you know of the needs. Hey, I realize that your spouse is working late or out of town, or, and you got the kids there juggling the kids. And uh, can, I, can I bring you dinner tonight? What, what can I do to help? One of the most powerful ways to step into living for others. What you're saying is, I'd, I'd really like to put my life on hold for a moment and do something for you. Very powerful way to live by emptying yourselves and complete joy is found in living that way. Emptying and humbling. Um, Fantastic examples for us in Christian history. Um, I have a quote from Elizabeth Elliot I want to read. I don't know if you know who Elizabeth is. Elizabeth and Jim Elliot, uh, missionaries along with um, a couple of other couples um, to uh, to an unreached tribe 
And, uh, and, and not only that, it was a very hostile tribe, tribe at the time. And so Jim Elliott ended up dying as a martyr for his faith there. Elizabeth Elliott, his wife, um, she regrouped and reengaged and eventually reached that tribe for Christ. Um, there's a couple of uh, movies out on it. Into the Spear is one of them. And uh, Beyond the Splendor, um, either one is, is a decent watch to tell the story. But Elizabeth Elliott makes this comment about self-sacrificial living. I feel like, I feel like she has a f- fantastic platform to make this kind of statement. She says, the world looks for happiness through self-assertion. Asserting self, that's where the world looks for happiness. The Christian knows that joy is found in self-abandonment. The world looks for joy in self-assertion. The Christian knows it's found in self-abandonment. And then she quotes Jesus. If a man will let himself be lost for my sake, Jesus said, he will find his true self. She goes on to say this. Maturity starts with the willingness to give yourself or to give oneself. That's where maturity starts. And what a challenge for us today. That we wouldn't simply get caught up in the trendy movement of our culture and become generous and and others-centered in this season, but that in Christ, we would live this way year-round. Maybe we just need to leave the nativity up year-round to remind us of what it looks like to empty yourself, pour yourself out, and to live for others. Paul continues in verse 17. Remember, writing from prison, He says this, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, we talked about this last week, the the possibility of his death um, by way of death sentence was a very probable uh, situation he was facing. At this point, he hasn't received the death penalty, but was very likely something he was going to face soon. So he said, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad And rejoice with you all. And then he makes this last statement. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. We begin to feel the full essence of what he means when he says, make my joy complete. I have joy in my suffering right now. I have joy in what God is doing in your life. But for my joy to be complete, I need you to have joy in what's going on in my life. This same-mindedness, this same love, this unity in the community of Christ. Um, The Apostle Paul, the same author, in 1 Corinthians 12, um, described the community of Christ and our relationships this way. And I think this helps shed some light, too, on the topic. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 12, starting in 24, the second part of 24, he says this. This is Paul writing. But God has so composed the body, talking about the church, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And then look at what he says in verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. You remember the definition of one accord? To be united as one, one for all and all for one. But not as you say that, if one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, what happens? We all rejoice together. That's what we experienced earlier today when Carly was baptized. Was that between her and the Lord? Yes. But it was also between us and her and us and the Lord. And and the reason we rejoiced in that, we were sharing in that moment with her, with one another. When one member suffers, we all suffer. When one member is honored, we rejoice together. What a beautiful challenge from the Apostle Paul to us. Complete joy is found 
you're taking notes, in sharing life, and we don't want to use that phrase flippantly. Doesn't mean that we just hang together. Doesn't mean we just go play golf together or work out together or knit together or drink coffee together. Sharing life is so much more deep than that and even more messy than that. However, complete joy is found in sharing life within the community of Christ. The only way to get around that is to skip chapter 2 altogether and find another place to read in the Bible or take some scissors and cut it out. Complete joy is found when you and I truly get to the place we roll up our sleeves with a willingness to engage in one another's lives. We commit to show up. Baby showers, life groups, birthday parties, Sunday mornings. Again, not just a call to busyness, but a true commitment to walk with and celebrate with one another. I was talking with one of our couples yesterday from our church members who, um, who don't have kids yet. And, uh, and they were just talking about the agony of being invited to baby showers. And uh, yet they go. And, they, and they, they go and they buy presents. And they were just talking about the humor of, we're just, we're just shooting in the dark here. We don't know what kids need. We're just looking at a registry and trying to buy gifts because we, we hate baby showers. But they go. Why? Because they are committed to the community of Christ. It matters. Showing up matters. The gift doesn't matter. You matter. Man, I'm excited. I'm excited about this truth. Not just, not just starting something here at Solid Rock, but truly becoming something we fan into flame to the point where when this sermon is preached, any one of you could get up here and just finish it for me. Because we live this way in Christ. And we're getting there. That's what's exciting. We're getting there. I'm so excited about 2015. And what I believe and what the elders and the staff believe God is going to continue doing in our church as he continues to take these three strands and just more tightly weave us together. For the sake of our good and for his glory. I want to end with a couple of questions and then we're going to pray together and move towards communion. Um, just a couple of questions of reflection for you um, to think about. You don't necessarily need to answer these right now, but I would encourage you to take sermon notes home and maybe spend some time alone with the Lord and, and work through these questions. And um, you've got, I think, six questions. I'm just going to read a couple of them. One of the, well, first question is this. Why is it so hard for us to live for other people? Let's just answer that question. Why is it so hard for us to live for other people? Now, as you think about that question, think more specifically about yourself. What are some specific ways that God is calling you to empty yourself for the sake of others? And maybe along with that, what are some ways that God is calling you into obedience? Obedience to Christ. We'll end with this last question. And this is a question for me. What are some areas that, that I and you need to be more open to engage in? in the community of Christ. Things that I've been shut off to, not interested in, but I realized today, it matters. Showing up matters. What are some areas for us to be more engaged in? All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray for us and um, our, what's gonna happen now is um, our prayer partners are gonna be available before we take communion. We always like to spend some time in reflection. Um, today, our elders are gonna be serving communion, so they'll be standing at the front and also at the back with the elements of communion. And just as always, when, it's, when you're ready, uh, we invite you to come as a family or by yourself. Come by and take the elements of communion. You can take those back to your seat. 
you, you can kneel up here. You could go to the prayer and counseling rooms. Um, but once we get to that place in the service, at, when you're ready, when you feel like, okay, I'm ready to do this, we want to invite you to come up and uh, to take communion uh, as a church. So our elders will be down here. But before we get there, I'm going to invite our prayer partners to come forward. And uh, I'm going to pray for us and uh, just allow God to stir in our hearts some of the things that we've heard today. And so we're going to take just a minute. And, and Jason, if you don't mind coming up and, uh, and maybe just, just drop in some guitar behind us. Um, we'll spend just a few moments in reflection and then we'll move towards communion. Let's pray together. Father, as we hear this powerful word today, God, our hearts are stirred. And we know that each of us has been challenged in a very specific way. And God, um, now as we think about our response, I pray in a very intimate way you would speak to each one of us. I pray, God, that you would illustrate from the word we've heard today where our lives need to be challenged or shaped or nudged or encouraged in some specific way. And God, for any person here who doesn't know you today, that that today they wouldn't take that step and maybe come talk to a prayer partner about what it means to become a Christian, to, to make that decision personally, to follow you and trust you. So, Lord Jesus, we lay these things before you now as we prepare to reflect and respond. We ask that you would move among us with your spirit, illuminate, confront us where we need to be confronted, heal us where we're broken, encourage us where we're despaired. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.